Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are studying on the triennial cycle, and this is one of those times where I'm giving that as a disclaimer. So if I were to just approach Parshat Lech Lecha, I would not choose for us to study chapter 14 and 15 of that Parsha. Um, and this, this is why we read on the triennial. This is why I read religiously on the triennial because I would skip this every time. Um, and then we would never see it and we would never be exposed to it. And it just would never get studied or read. So, um, so that is my disclaimer that I am keeping myself um, committed to the triennial so that we see all of these texts and all of these stories. Um, this one's a curiosity. This text 14 and 15 are two short chapters So we'll fly through 14 and we'll look at 15. Um, So the Parsha begins, Lech Lecha begins with the call to to Avram and Sarai by God to leave everything that's familiar to them and there to travel from there to what we will know, of course, as Israel, as the promised land. It is Canaan at this point. Um, and so we get the story in uh, Aviva Zornberg's words, you know, of, of incredible dislocation. So in order for, for Avram and Sarai to start something new, in order for this monotheistic revolution to happen, this huge advance in how people understand the divine and a relationship with the divine, in order for that to happen, there is serious dislocation and it has to be done according to Torah and how our story is put together. It has to be done ripping oneself out of the context and the norms of the time of, of what you grew up in. So they have to leave their, their country. They have to leave their parents' house. They have to leave their language. They have to leave their culture. They have to leave the food that's familiar. I mean, of course, there's food for a region, but Right, they're leaving all of the landmarks, everything that they know that has has them feel safe and secure in the world. All of that falls away as they begin this journey towards uh, Eretz Israel to the Promised Land. And so that's that's how the parsha begins: that a call from God to Avram with absolutely no reason given. Why Avram? What's so great about this guy? What's so different about this guy? Um, some of our commentators want to say, well, actually God was calling and Avram's the only one who heard that the signal was going out and Avram's the only one whose, whose radio was tuned to the yud heh vav station. Um, so he was the only one receptive, if you will, to that call. But really that's just a way that the, that the commentators try to deal with the fact that we are not given any reason that Avram is chosen and one explanation I've heard that I really love um, is why, why do we choose the beloved? Go explain to somebody else why you chose your beloved. They won't understand, right? They'll, they'll hear you and understand you falling in love with that person or loving that person, but they, they won't get it. Who can really get how and why we, we love who we love um, and so that's one of that's one of my favorite commentaries on why we're not told um, why Avram was chosen is because God loved Avram, period. God gets to love and doesn't have to explain. And Avram doesn't have to earn it. But Avraham does follow um, and does trust and does, you know, unite his life and his destiny with this yud heh vav business. All right. Now. Of course, what I'm always wondering about is where's Sarai? I would love to have her story. Okay, what? Can you imagine? He comes home and says, okay, so I was talking with an invisible deity uh, who said that we need to leave everything and everybody and go to someplace called Canaan. Or no, not even that. God says, (laughs) you're going to go to a place that I will show you, right? They don't even know where they're going. So Asher um, Ereka that I will show you. And so, you know, can you imagine Sarai? Like, she's got to be like, what? So we don't have that story. We don't have Sarai talking to the uh, folks in the household. <laughs> yeah, Jody saying, I would say, bye-bye, right? That's kind of like, because it's crazy. It's, it's a little crazy. Um, and so, but she 
loves Avram and she believes in, in what he believes in, in terms of he, she believes in him. And so they set off for Knaan. All right. So let's, let's look at our text. This is, this is an incident that is dropped into the middle of the Avram narrative. Um, it is probably very, very old. I'm studying um, from, from Sarna, from Nahum Sarna, Understanding Genesis, one of the great scholars uh, of biblical literature. And Sarna says that just the fact that we get so many place names and we get place names that are no longer named what they were, we get a double name, what it used to be called and what it's called now, that this points to uh, very, very clearly points to it being uh, from antiquity. So from way before it was written. So if this is written in the Iron Age, right, this is talking about, um, he believes Bronze Age, early Bronze Age. So middle Bronze Age one, um, that's really old. That's really old. So, um, so, so we'll look at it, but I just want to set you up because it's bizarre. It's just kind of dropped in here out of nowhere. It stands on its own as a story, as a text. Sarna uses um, archaeological evidence to support the idea that this was a story that was in circulation about something that actually happened. Um, and I'll show you a map that helps explain a little bit of that in a minute. So we're starting chapter 14, as you can see. So out of the middle of nowhere, we get the following. Now when King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elasar, King Shedorlamar of Elam, and King Tidal of Goyim made war on King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gemara, King Shinab of Adma, King Shemabar of Zobah, all the latter joined forces at the Valley of Shidim, now the Dead Sea. So already the author is telling us that it used to be called the Valley of uh, Sidim, and it's now Yam HaMelech, the Salt Sea. Um, what that means, according to Sarna, is that this was a valley, Emek, right? It means valley. It was a valley that got filled in by the Dead Sea. So when this story, what the time that this story is referencing is when that was still a valley. And it's about a battle, a, fa- a famous battle that happened in that valley. So 12 years, these kings served uh, this big guy, Kadar Lamer. And in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, this big guy um, and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rifaim at Ashterot Karnaim. This is one of those double place names, which tells us it used to be Ashterot. Now it was Karnaim. The Zuzim at Ham, the Emim. You see how these words are not Hebrew, right? They are most likely Babylonian. They are most likely um, the kings of the area around Israel to the north, to the east, not the south, because the south is Egypt. Um, but we are getting a description, right? The Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the Midbar. Well, if we talk about Seir, who's in Seir? Do you remember? Who's in Seir? Esau. Yes, good. Whoever that was, you get the gold star. Esau <laughs> is in Seir. And who is Esau the ancestor of? What people? Edomites. Yes, good, Pam. The Edomites. So look how old this text is. The Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran. Who was in Seir when this story is being written and told? The Horites, not the Edomites. So this is another place Sarna looks to say this this predates uh, the Edomites and the stories around Esav. So when it gets written down already, this is not the reality anymore, but it's, but it's a memory from a time uh, that, that this happened. Okay. So then he's got to look at other uh, research and other um, uh, archeological evidence to see wh- wh- who we might be talking about. All right. So on their way back, they came to a Mishpat, which is Kadesh. See another time that we're told it's now called Kadesh and subdued all the territory of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwell in Chatzon Tamar. 
Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, which is Zoar, went forth and engaged them in battle in the valley of Shidim. The big guy and his folks, those four against those five, the valley of Shidim was dotted with bitumen pits and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah in their flight threw themselves into them while the rest escaped to the hill country. The invaders seized all the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So we have an invasion. Okay. So we have some kind of invasion and some, some major kings against some other major kings in the region. This is, this is a regional war and invasion that Avraham we're going to see participates in. Why does Avraham get involved? Avraham gets involved because, here we go, at Lot. They took Lot, the son of Avraham's brother, and his possessions and departed, for he had settled in Sodom. So the, invas- the invaders sack Sodom and Gomorrah. And when you sack a city, what do you do with its inhabitants? You take them, right? Able-bodied people were taken as slaves. And we know what they did to women, right? You know, they took them as booty. So, um, so Lot is captured when these invaders take Sodom and Gomorrah and all of his stuff, his household and all of his stuff. A fugitive, so someone who escaped the battle, brought the news to Avram the Hebrew. So we get him called here Avram Ha'ivri. Avram the Ivri. And I'm not going to say Hebrew because... That's not what Ivri means exactly. I mean, it does sort of, but I would rather stay with Ivri. From some want to say La'avor, to cross over. That Abraham is the crosser over. He leaves what is familiar. He leaves his homeland. And he is, he, he is defined by crossing over. Our people are called Ivrim, Hebrews. Possibly also a people that crossed over. We're not sure what the reference is, but early Semitic people in this region. Um, so he is Avram Ha'ivri, Avram the Hebrew. Where is he hanging out? Where does he live right now? At the Terebinths of Mamre. All right. So, and he has Ba'alevrit. He has uh Folks who are part of a covenant with him. So those last Hebrew words, Ba'alei Vrit Avram. They are folks who are attached by covenant to Avram. So they have an alliance. When Avram heard that his kinmen had been taken captive, he mustered his retainers, born into his household, numbering 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Those of you who know the land of Israel know that Dan is in the far north. That was the territory of the tribe of Dun. So he goes all the way from where he is at the Terebinths of Mamre, all the way up to Dun. In order to retrieve Lot and all of Lot's stuff, remember, there's a lot of kings involved in this battle. It's four against five. He's going up against the victors with 318 people. So a very unlikely scenario that right that he's going to go up against four regional kings and their armies and and try to go get Lot back at night he and his servants deployed against them and defeated them and he pursued them as far as Chobah which is north of Damascus these are clues to us about where these kings are from Akkadia Sumeria Babylonia, Mesopotamia, all these words we use all the time. That's the region we're dealing with here. And, the, and Sarna traces the route that, that they take in their invasion and the route that Avram takes. And I'll show you what that turns out to mean. He brought back all the possessions. He also brought back his kinsman Lot and his possessions and the women and the rest of the people. So Avram gets involved because his nephew has been kidnapped. And whether you want to get involved or not, it is family. And he has an obligation to go rescue his brother's son, Lot, and all of his people, right? The women and children, presumably, as well. 
when he returns from defeating these kings, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the Valley of Shaveh, which is the Valley of the King. Again, we're getting an old name and the new name or how everybody would have known it at the time. The king Malchitzedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of El Elyon, God Most High. This is very interesting. He said, who said, Malchitzedek said, Blessed be Avram of El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth. And And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your foes into your hand, and Avraham gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, so <laughs> a little bizarre little story here dropped in the middle of our our stuff about Avram. Never before and never again do we see Avram represented as a man of war or as somebody who is victorious in war. This is an old story, a very old story, as I as because I believe Sarna. And if you look, Sar, Sarna gives us a map, and this is the map of both the invasion and of uh, Avram's route. But if you look at the invasion route, there are settlements during Middle Bronze Age one all along that line, the eastern line, east of the Jordan River. There are settlements all through there, through the Negev, all the way down. They are destroyed in Middle Bronze Age one. They had been thriving kingdoms, wealthy, civilized, you know, lots going on, lots of trade, lots of stuff going on. And they are decimated by something in Middle Bronze Age one to the point that in one area over here, It took 900 years for a settlement to happen again. So whatever it was, was devastating and wipes out all of those settlements um, along what turns out to be the King's Highway. So this map is important because if, because if you chase, trace the King's Highway, that's, that's the route we just saw laid out, which makes sense. If you're going to have thriving cities in the ancient world, even today, where are your thriving cities? They are along trade routes, right? Because that's how you get stuff. So <laughs> Mehmet says perhaps an earthquake. Um, so it <laughs> could be, but those, those tend to be a little bit more localized. Um, th- this is the entire line of those communities are wiped out. Those civilizations are wiped out. So it is the old King's Road. I don't know what the old Jerusalem Road means to your question, David, but th- this is the King's Road that was the trade route from north to south in, uh, in Israel to the east of the Jordan and the Dead Sea. Okay, so we're talking Iran, right? We're talking Syria, Iran, Lebanon. We're talking that whole area, some massive conflict between five kings versus four kings that used to be in relationship to each other. Then four kings rebel, and we get this huge regional conflict which wipes out civilizations uh, in mid-Bronze Age one. So that is, you know, figure 1800, 2000 years BCE. Remember that Israel is not there. Israel's not there yet. The people of Israel is not there. In mid-Bronze Age 1. Okay. Uh, is this the first time Jody asks that we read about giving 10%? There seems to be some relationship between Avram and Malchitzedek that he tithes to Malchitzedek. Probably a very ancient, very common amount to give, right? If you are in relationship, Avram is a visitor. He doesn't live there. He's sojourning. So Malchitzedek is the ruling king of what we think is Jerusalem here. And um, clearly Avram get, offers him a tithe. So they are in some kind of, you know, treaty relationship that, that Malchitzedek is entitled to 10% of the booty, of the loot. Okay. So um, very interesting that, Malchitzedek, who does Malchitzedek call on to bless Avram? El Elyon. So Sarna, Nahum Sarna, has an interpretation that says possibly 
because we have no reference to, to um, Jerusalem with the patriarchs, possibly this is a way to tie one of the patriarchs to Jerusalem and signaling that just as Malchitzedek recognizes the one God, unlike the rest of the Canaanites there, so will Jerusalem be the, the cult site of the one God. That this you know, is foreshadowing that uh, Yerushalayim will become uh, the place where the, the cult of the one God is represented. Um, okay, Judith? What was the cause of the conflict in the first place? We Why don't did- know. Okay. We don't know. We know rebellion. They were in alliance. Four kings rebel. We, so we don't, we don't know. It could have been territorial. It could have been, who knows? Okay. Who knows? Mm-hmm. We're not told. So that's another signal that it was a well-known story, right? And right, that it was, people knew what, what this was about because it doesn't get explained, Right. Um, and so we also think there was a Malchitzedek tradition that we're missing because he's referenced again in a way that says just like Malchitzedek. And it's like, well, if you don't know who Malchitzedek is, it wouldn't make any sense to refer to him. You're right. You're just like Malchitzedek. And it's like, well, <laughs> we don't know who that is exactly. Um, so we think there might have been a Malchitzedek tradition that's been lost to us, that there was some relationship between uh, uh, the king here and um and uh, Avram or, and or, you know, the early patriarchs. Barry? Uh, I don't know why, but I seem to remember that Malkitzedek is really the Shem, the son of Noah. And that is what, and Abraham is like a descendant of his or something. I don't know why it's stuck in my memory. Maybe it's nonsense. So it sounds midrashic to me. Right. That the the rabbis often when we don't know who somebody is, they want to conflate two people. Right. So so they say that Shifra and Pua are actually Yocheved and Miriam. (laughs) Right. Like so it they the Midrash loves to conflate people when they're not sure what to do with somebody. So that sounds Midrashic to me that the rabbis would say this is actually right. (laughs) That's how they deal with a lot of these texts. Um, Okay, so this. So this stands alone. We don't get any more references to this. And, and we don't see Avram again um, in battle. It makes some sense if you think about it. These are patriarchal narratives taking stories that would have been in the region already, things that were already well known and attested to in Akkadian and in Sumerian, retelling those stories, reconstructing those stories, the flood, creation, reconstructing all of those stories for an Israelite audience. So it makes total sense that we don't get a lot of stories of the patriarchs being um, warriors because that would take it out of the realm of being a religious text, right? These are being told by Israel who want to glorify the fact that God gives Avram the land. Avram doesn't win it by beating people up in the region, that detracts from this being a religious story, right? So all of these texts are being brought together by early Israel as religious texts, as, a, as evidence of the relationship with the one God. And it, that would be undermined if the way we got stuff was because the patriarchs were super strong and took it. Does, does that make sense? So God, God is the one who acts to give the people victory in battle, not the cunning and strength of of the army or of the patriarchs it is god right remember when the people refuse to go up and fight god says i'll be with you you're gonna win because i'm with you right and then they refuse to fight and then they get schmeist right so um because it's god who ensures victory it's god who gives victory it's god who gives the land it's god who kicks you out of the land if you don't behave um and so uh it, it would it would seriously undermine the point of gathering these texts for our patriarchs to have been great warriors. All right. Although some of the stories we tell about them, it's like, really, what kind of a people makes up these stories about their ancestors? Like I just asked a bar mitzvah kid about that, who got the portion of, you know, Jacob tricking uh, Asaph out of the blessing and out of the birthright. And I'm like, who makes up stories like this? about their ancestors and that these are the people we originate from. 
And the kid was like, a crazy people. I'm like, yeah, I would have to agree. Yes, it's a little crazy. All right, we good? Everybody good? El Elyon used was it used commonly in the area? We think this is referring to Yudhe Vavhe. Um, El Elyon, yes, is attested to in the region. Um, but El is the head of the Canaanite pantheon, so it does not suggest monotheism. So we do get we do get the name attested, uh, but we don't. But Malchitzedek here is clearly referencing Avram's God because Avram accepts the blessing and tithes in response. So it's clear that Avram understands that Malchitzedek is invoking Avram's God, El Elyon, um, or at least that's that's how Sarna reads it. Um, and it's part of the reason it's here, right, is, is to foreshadow Jerusalem being the the place where God causes God's name to be. Do reconstruction, Bert and Carol, do, do recon Jews accept God in history? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Are you asking, do reconstructionist Jews believe that God intervenes in history, Bert? Uh, yes, there, there, there's a whole question which is kind of central to these stories that somehow... God is someone who acts on history, is right. a force that changes history, uh, that God brings victory. And this would seem to not be in line with the Reconstructionist idea of what God is. So I'm wondering how that gets reconstructed. How does that get reconstructed? So first of all, you have to want to reconstruct it, Right. So you have to, you have to need and want to reconstruct this idea. I don't need to do that. I don't, I don't, I'm not attached to somehow salvaging this language or this God. I I don't need to. Um, So I don't, (laughs) right? Like, does God work in history? Of course God works in history because God is history unfolding. That's a reconstructionist understanding for me. All of this is God unfolding, God can't not be part of history because God is part of everything. Is, is God a being that thinks and makes decisions to intervene for this one and not for that one? Of course not. Of course, that's not a reconstructionist or, or progressive Jewish understanding. You know, we, of course, do not have God thinking and then acting on the world outside of the world. So let's look at, let's look at 15 which is an interesting text. All right, so we are going to Genesis 15. Look at this word, rechush. For those of you who read Hebrew, rechush is the stuff, the booty. So we're going to get God talking with our Avram here in, some in, in an interesting conversation. Okay. So this is often how Torah deals with we're switching gears. Totally different story now. We don't know how in relationship to time is this the next day is it the next afternoon is it seven years later we don't know this is typical torah that after these things after these events so the word of god comes to avram in a vision lay more saying altira avram don't be afraid avram Anochi magen lach. I am your magen. I am your shield. Scharcha harbe me'od. Your reward will be very great. Some people want to tie this directly to what just happened because otherwise it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that God comes out of nowhere and says, don't be afraid. It would make more sense that Avram just was in a very serious battle and came very close to losing, right, to death. He's got 318 people against four kings, big guys, you know, really big kings. So um, very possibly after a time, and often after a time of danger, we get God comforting the patriarchs and assuring them. So this would make some sense. I'm going to be your magain, and your your reward is going to be very great. But, so the disjunctive vav here, but Avram said, Adonai yud hey vav hey, 
like, what can you give me when it seems that cursed, right? That I, I don't have a, meaning he doesn't have a son. He doesn't have a child. And so who's going to be my, my heir? Meshek Eliezer, he says, is going, Damesek Eliezer is going to be my heir. So what's happening here? We know we've, we've, we talked about this in previous years when we're talking about Hagar and we're talking about Ishmael. So hopefully you all remember that when we look at the Newsy texts and certain texts from Mari, we see that adoption was common for providing an heir to the head of the estate. It was very common. Now we have them and they've been translated and it's, it's right there. It's attested to in the archeological record documents that say so-and-so I am adopting. So-and-so is adopting so-and-so as their heir, unless they have a natural born child. Then the heir gets bumped down to second and the natural born heir will get the inheritance of, of the firstborn son. The, the second person still inherits, but less. So it's provided for that you, you adopt someone as your heir. Um, and then if you have natural issue, then the agreement changes. It is clear that what Avraham is saying to God is, I've got nobody. I'm going to have to adopt like my favorite, you know, steward as my heir. And Avram goes on. You, since you have granted me no offspring, which you promised me, right? My steward will be my heir. But the word of God comes to him and says, that one shall not be your heir. None but your very own issue shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. And added, so shall your offspring be. And because he put his trust in God, God considered it tzedek, considered it righteousness on on Avram's part. Now God's about to enter a covenant with Avram, what do we do when we have a covenant? We need a couple of things, don't we? We need a preamble. Who's cutting this deal? And on what authority? That has to happen. The king who's making the deal has to say who they are and why they have a claim to a covenant relationship with the vassal king. So we get this in the Decalogue, right? We get this in the Ten Commandments. And here we go again. This is perfect this is perfectly um, uh, regional. Like this, this is what you, this is what you do. This is how you, you make the covenant. It's a very accepted model in this part of the world, predating uh, early Israel. All right. So God says, what does God say? Ani I am Asher me or kasdim. The one who took you out of or kasdim to give you, this land, Larishta, as a possession. All right. So that's who's entering the deal and, and deciding the terms. And he said, Adonai Yotevavhe, how will I know that I am to possess it? God answers, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old she-goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young bird. Okay. So Avraham brings all of them and cut them in half, placing each half opposite the other, but did not cut up the bird. Okay, remember the language about a covenant? We cut a covenant. You cut an animal in half, and the two parties to the covenant pass between the pieces. We don't know why. We can imagine, though, that if you're making a deal, the message is, we seal the deal by walking through these two pieces, suggesting that if one of us breaks the deal, this is what should happen to us, right? Pretty clear. I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not a big stretch to figure out why they might have done this. Um, so as this is happening, birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Avram drove them away. 
the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell on Avram, and a great dark dread descended upon him. So, Ema Hashecha Gdola, a dark dread, Nofelet Alav, fell on him. And he said to Avram, we're assuming this is God talking, know well that your offspring shall be strangers in a land not theirs, and they shall be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will execute judgment on the nation they shall serve, and in the end, they shall go out. How, Hebrew readers? What's the end of verse 14? They will go out, birichush gadol, with a lot of rechush. We just saw rechush in the other story, and now... um, we're seeing Rechush here. Uh, Avram does not take any of the booty from the war, none of the Rechush. He rejects it. And so God here is promising your people are going to be enslaved. It's going to be ugly, but they will go out with a lot of Rechush. You who turned it down, the spoils of war, your people will be rewarded with lots of Rechush. Ve'ata, and you, you will come to your Ancestors, Bishalom, in peace. Tikaver Besevatova, you will be buried at an old good age. And they shall return here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We have no idea what this means. When the sun set and it was very dark, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between those pieces. On that day, Yudhe cut a covenant with Avram, saying, To your offspring I assign this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigrashites, and the Jebusites. That is who will get kicked out so that your, your descendants will inherit. their lands, essentially. And then chapter 16, which we read next year, uh, talking about, we just got the the word to Avram, the commitment by God, a covenant by God that Avram will have descendants. And the very next sentence is, Visarai, but again, the disjunctive of, but Sarai, the wife of Avraham had not given birth to any children. So we get God answering Avram's um, preoccupation with being childless. And the very next sentence is uh, talking about Sarai uh, being barren. And then we, we know that story, what happens there, but you'll have to wait for next year. All right. So bizarre incident here, bizarre kind of um, conversation and, and ritual. It is clear that God is cutting a covenant with Avram, giving this land to Avram's natural heir and descendants. We know that, like that part is very clear. So what's interesting is when you cut a covenant, both parties pass through the pieces. That's how you seal the covenant and how you invoke, right? The power that binds you to the covenant Who passes through the pieces here? Only God. Avram does not pass through the pieces. God is cutting a covenant that is only binding on God here. Avram is just the the recipient, the beneficiary. Avram doesn't have to do anything. God says, God passes through the pieces, symbolized by the pillar of fire and smoke, Right, which is often used for God uh, in our texts, and so he, so so he, Abraham witnesses God taking on God's self the terms of the covenant that I will give you a natural heir, and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars, and they will inherit all of this land. Okay, Joshua Gerstein has an interesting take on this. I thought so. Here he's he's telling us what happens. He said, I am the Lord God who brought you forth from Or Chaldees, blah, blah, blah. And they, then, he, then, he, then God asks for, from Avram, three heifers, three goats, three rams, a turtle dove, and a young bird. He took these and divided them and placed each part opposite the other half, but did not divide the birds. 
And then Avram gets this revelation that his people are going to be enslaved for 400 years, but in the fourth generation, they'll come back. There are several questions here, (laughs) minimally several. So let's see what this guy has to say. He says, he quotes Rob Soloveitchik. And he says, the answer, according to Rob Soloveitchik, offers a fascinating insight into this biblical text. He explains that Avram's question, how will I know, implies much more than knowing in the colloquial sense of the word. Those of you who study with me know this, right? We know this. To know someone, to know God is to feel a certain way towards someone, an intimate knowledge, an intimate understanding. So, and so he quotes, uh, you know, that Adam knew Chava, his wife. So to know someone in the biblical sense, right? <laughs> Literally. Um, this is what the Hebrew word to know means. Therefore, according to Rav Soloveitchik, Abraham's questioning of God's promise of inheriting the land was not about expressing doubt in whether or not this would actualize. Rather, Avraham is asking God, how will I love this land so much? How do you expect me to establish an eternal bond between myself and the land such that it will become a homestead passed on for all generations? Abraham's question was not a theological one, but a practical one. He wished to discover how could he could ensure that the land of Israel would be loved and cherished by his descendants for generations to come. I love this interpretation because <coughs> it answers a few problems. And it makes some sense. We always take it for granted that Avraham wants the land of Israel, right? And that the Jewish people live in the land of Israel and are attached to the land of Israel and want to stay there. But if you think about it, Avraham and Sarai are not from here. They're strangers here. So you're promising that my d- descendants to the fourth generation, you know, are, are going to come back here. Like what, how will I, how will I know How are they supposed to know this land? It's not where we come from. There's nothing familiar about this place. And yet this is going to be our ancestral homeland. Okay, so tell me how that's going to happen. That's what Avram's asking. With Avram's question now in clearer perspective, we can better understand God's answer. In response, so God says to bring these things, divide them with the exclusion of the birds and place them opposite each other. These animals and the rite which was performed with them was not just a solemn ritual and covenant between God and Abraham. In fact, they hold the key to how the children of Israel can form an everlasting bond and eternal connection to the land of Israel. According to Soloveitchik, the one common factor uniting all of the animals in the above verse is the fact that they represent the three classes from which the Torah has designated korbanot, offerings that, that they're brought from. So these represent sacrifice right? You do not appreciate something if you do not have to fight for it. If you do not sacrifice in order to get it, the most distinctive feature of the Jewish people is its readiness to sacrifice. So Soloveitchik sees these, these particular animals as God saying to Avram, you want to know how you'll be attached to this land? And of course, the rest of us who study Torah together would say, and the kind of society that my values are going to demand that you build, how will your people be attached to that? Through sacrifice. You're going to have to sacrifice. They're going to be strangers, right? We are going to be formed by the experience of suffering in Egypt. We will not be a sovereign people in the land of Israel, ready to build a society based on the Jewish values of equity and kindness and compassion and fairness and blah, 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 blah until we've been forged in the oven of slavery. Uh, This is the second component that forever enables the Jewish people to truly appreciate and merit the land of Israel as their everlasting home. What about the birds? What the heck are they doing here? They don't get cut up. Ah, as we know from the verses, the birds were not divided, right? Rav Soloveitchik beautifully explains that the bird who was able to soar high above and escape the earthly reality in which the other animals live represents the spirit of the Jewish people. At times during our long exile, hope seemed lost and redemption seemed far away. 
Yet the undefeatable spirit of the nation has always had the ability to rise high above and transcend whatever tragedies the Jewish people have endured throughout history. Even when all seemed bleak, the Jewish spirit was able to soar up to the heavens. That explains Rav Soloveitchik is why the birds were not divided because the spirit of the Jewish people can never be broken. A beautiful interpretation of the text um, by Rav Soloveitchik, if you ask me. When we talk about heirs, we're always talking about men, aren't we? Of course. Okay. Of course, unless we're talking about the story of Sarai and Hagar. Remember, we talked a few years ago about priestesses in Mesopotamia would have chosen an heir to do all of the rituals that are required when she dies. And that she didn't have an heir, so she got an heir through Hagar. And then when she had her own son, she no longer needed, she had to make a choice between Yishmael and her own son and chooses her own son. And according to Mesopotamian law, if a priestess kicks out an heir that they adopted, then they must free the woman and the heir if they're slaves, they must free them. So we talked about that a few years ago when we looked through at all of these texts through the lens of uh, Mesopotamian priestesses. And we think Sarai is a pedimento of, um, of Mesopotamian goddess, priestess, queen uh, kind of stuff. So, and that's the work of Sabina Tuval. Uh, and it was, it's fascinating to me. And so, so there, there are remnants of stories where the women are the ones who have heirs, but they're remnants. And if you look at the story of Rebecca, it's also there. She has twins and she has to pick which one becomes the heir. Now, of course, in our story, it's the heir to the patriarch because these are boy stories written by boys in charge with a boy God, right? So it all gets changed, but we can see remnants of a time when it was matriarchal and a time when women, daughters would have inherited from mothers and in certain cases, sons uh, would have inherited as well. So um, that's Amy? Yes. Um, What about the birds of prey? What what do they symbolize? It's very interesting. to chase them away. It's very weird. We, we don't know. Possibly, uh, Sarna thinks possibly it is uh, very well attested in the uh, ancient Mesopotamian literature that, that birds are a sign of fertility. So possibly, right, these birds landing is, is some way um, a reference to the fact that Avram will have many, many offspring. But we, but we don't know. Whatever, whatever this story originally was, we've lost it's lost integrity by the time it gets written down. It just doesn't, it just doesn't uh, make a lot of sense. Isn't that an ancient way, like the Zoroastrians, uh, they don't bury their dead, they just place them in a high place and the birds of prey um, consume the bodies? Yes. So, but, so that, that wouldn't make a lot of sense to be here because, of course, Israelite tradition is coming to be over and against that kind of desecration of the body. So it's it's interesting that it's so here. it makes sense that he would chase away the symbol of this other culture with their weird burial ceremonies. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's a rejection, right, of that image being a good one, right? And in the neighborhood, some people did think that was a good idea. You let birds of prey eat the dead, and that way the dead return, you know, to nature. Um, but yeah, so possibly a rejection of that. But again, it's lost its integrity in terms of being self-explanatory, right? We, we have to kind of dig for what it might mean. But what I loved about the piece I brought you was Soloveitchik, you know, one of our greatest thinkers ever. I love how Soloveitchik understands that the Jewish people, we suffer. And right now that piece is really impactful for me living in COVID you know, with all kinds of racial tension, with all kinds of suffering of people in the streets, of people losing their jobs and their homes, with people dying in the hundreds of thousands. It just, it feels like this is a very Jewish text to respond to kind of the, how easy it is to become hopeless and it, and have it all feel overwhelming. Uh, and that, that the Jewish people, we, we know 
resilience. We know how to suffer and yet maintain hope and that the spirit of the Jewish people is not broken by suffering. Believe me, we're carrying around a lot of PTSD. Don't get me wrong. It's not like it hasn't left an impact. <laughs> it so has, right? We can be, we can be, you know, there are parts that are pretty damaged by our suffering, but in general, the Jewish people, you know, Soloveitchik is saying the spirit of the Jewish people rises. And, and I have to believe that we as Americans, I, I feel like as a Jew, my Jewish identity needs to inform my American identity right now. You know, that the, the resilience of the Jewish people needs to inform my American identity, that the, that the American people will rise, that we will, we will somehow get through this and get over this. Um, and and I'm talking about all of it, right? Not just coronavirus, but our division, our anger at each other, the anger in the street, the anger of just all of it, the suffering, the agony, the anxiety, um, the polarization. Um, I really am taking um, his Soloveitchik's teaching about this text seriously, that, um, that we have to figure out a way to maintain hope that we can that we can soar and that we will and that we will rise and we will not only make it through this, but create something, you know, really important on the other side. They don't just escape slavery, right? They create, they create a society based on Torah values that, that that's understood by our people to be radical, a radical revolution in a time and in a place where the gods were capricious and could do whatever they want and schmice you whenever they want. Zeus throws a thunderbolt at somebody and you get hit. And it's not because you deserved it. That was how they understood the gods in the ancient world. And this is a revolution to say, no, God is a God of justice. Will, will not, Avram says to God at Sodom and Gomorrah, will, will not the God of justice do justly? Right and holds God's standards against God, so this this is a radical new idea. So it's not just that they're going to survive slavery; they're going to come out of slavery a people that creates an understanding of a covenantal relationship between that people and the one God of the universe who demands justice. I think that is a beautiful, beautiful teaching for us right now as we are right suffering in our own Egypt. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.